0: Hi everyone, just a quick note before we get started today. You might notice that our sound is a little bit glitchy in this episode. Unfortunately, Leon wasn't able to come into the studio, so we had to record via video call. Hopefully the sound won't take away from your listening pleasure. We'd like to thank you for listening to our episode, and we do hope that you'll drop a comment and maybe even share some ideas for things that we can include in future episodes. Thanks again. Enjoy the episode. The mind. Our mind, in our mind.
1: Yeah. Was this the producer's episode?
0: Yes, this is the producer's episode. And I have to start off by by apologizing to um, Robert John Mutt-Lang. Because in episode one, I was... We were both kind of dissing the guy. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, sometimes you just got to admit when you're talking out of the top of your hat. and you...
1: <laughs> Like me with Bach the other day when you and I were talking
0: about Bach. Oh, Bach. ah, Bach. Oh, Bach. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, so I I looked up Mutt Lang and holy cow.
1: You've listened to the podcast and you've done your research, so what's changed in your opinion? Like, you had a certain opinion, and as did I. What changed after listening and and doing the research
0: for you? Part of it was what you had said when we talked about that. You were like, no, 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 hold on, but he, he produced Highway to Hell. So, you know, it wasn't like he just came in and had this one sound, you know, the Def Adams and Brian Leopard sound, you know.
1: Later on, he did kind of start to have that, though, right?
0: Yes. But so what changed for me was I realized how deep his story was in terms of developing as a musician and singer, going into producing and developing like what became his sound. So, yes, did he at that point develop the Mutt-Lang sound? I would say yes. And then when it suited his purpose to change, he would because he was doing what was best for the song. So I was listening. I told you I was listening to that podcast. Um, it's called Wax Audio Show. Yes. And these guys, they, they're crazy. They do like research and they learn about the <laughs> thing. before. <laughs> research. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> so they um, they had researched um, Mutt Lang and they, they even corrected the pronunciation of his name and all this. But they went on like they were talking about what. He sort of does, and what he's done from the very beginning. So, if you start from like when he not his first production credit, but his first like sort of breakout credit was with the Boomtown Rats in I guess 75 or something like that like their first album, yeah. And he was this quote unquote unknown kid because he. grown up in South Africa and did this, like, amazing work. He did something called the Springbok Radio Show. The Springbok Radio Show. Yeah, you know Springbok, the the animal, and it's also a a rugby team. Okay. Um. Yeah, and so the Springbok Radio Show, they weren't allowed to play the, the originals of songs that were hits outside of South Africa. Okay. Basically, it comes down to they had to make, like, covers, convincing covers of songs by everybody. So Elton John brings out a new song, and the Springbok radio show would do a cover of it. And Mutt Lang was one of the performers, singers, etc. that would do it. Wow. So from that, he learned how to get a certain sound, like everybody's sound exactly right. And that's how right. he learned what he's taken into then producing. So he hits the Boomtown Rats who are on their debut album. They got this kid who's gonna like produce for them. And yeah. he's awesome. And they're like, where yeah. the heck did this guy come from? You know? Yeah. So by the time he got to ACDC, he had been doing it for a couple of years with pretty big names, you know? Yeah. So um, long story short, as I realized, oh, my goodness, I was putting him in this little corner for something he did, like, <laughs> maybe 20 years into his career.
1: What's What's a producer do? Let's start there. Like, because okay. there's producers for of mu- music producers, and then there's, you know, there's, uh, re- like, is a music producer and a record producer the same? And what's a producer now compared to a producer before? Because nowadays, I think um, music producers are those guys that they're almost like like they'll compile the music on the computer. You know what I mean? Like those guys, they're almost, I hesitate to say DJs because they're not DJs. They're like, they'll take this and that and that and put it all together and they'll do clips and and everything like that. And then they'll have, uh, presumably, they'll have a famous artist ready to go like, uh, you know, the guy from Coldplay or... Or uh, Rihanna, or whomever that they want to have sing over top of this production that they've
0: made. Um, I I think it's it's become a complex question. Like if you're talking about Marshmallow, oh sorry, yep. what, is that his name, Marshmallow? That's his name, okay. I, I I think maybe something like that, or uh, is it Skrillex? Just, yeah. I think maybe. those might be more like that. So that they they create these amazing productions and then they have somebody sing over top.
1: Yeah, they'll have like a yeah. compilation album,
0: with with just
1: like all these different artists that sing over top of their stuff. Yeah, I mean that that is one way to do it. So you know, like I did some studio work back in the day when I was in Canada. We did karaoke tracks to cut her, you know, to to uh, to pay for the equipment that we bought. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of where I learned how to put songs, how songs were put together, and how drums were played, and how you know how arrangements were made and and how harmonies were done, and all of all of that stuff, but also the studio tricks that people used to get a certain sound, and what effects they used, what EQs they used, and stuff like that. So I'm just curious what you think, because in back in those days, a producer, I think, meant something totally different than it means now. I mean, to me, that was the time when the producer would be the guy that sort of made the decision about the overall sound of the album, and and even would get his mitts into the song selection and might even get into songwriting.
0: Yeah, so that's where I was going to go, is that it really depends on who you're talking about. Because if you're looking at Alan Walker, let's say, makes the song and then just puts a singer on it, right? So he is right. the songwriter, the the sound guy, maybe even at his computer, the engineer, et cetera. Whereas you get a guy like Bob Rock, a while ago, he did a recording with Richie Sambora, and the two of them ended up like writing the songs together. And then Bob Rock would sit down in his studio, I guess his home studio in Hawaii, and he would sit down and like write the songs, I- ideas. You know, I've got yeah. some, I've got a riff, I've got something. He'll he'd do that and then send it to Richie Sambora. Richie Sambora would like they would sort of bounce ideas back and forth. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's also that where where the producer is actually part of the songwriting process.
1: I've always been curious because George Martin obviously is kind of iconic. As the the Beatles producer, and I don't think he appears in any of the songwriting credits, but I, I've always kind of thought of him as a as a as a as a part of the songwriting
0: process. So I I can't speak to how he felt about that or how he approached that, but I can say that um, I heard an interview with Bob Brock talking about just that. The interviewer was asking him like, you know, you're writing songs with these guys, but you don't always get song credit songwriting credits, and he said, you know, sometimes I'll put in a little idea. And yes, it's it becomes part of the song. Sometimes it's a major part of the song, you know, it becomes like the hook or whatever. But he said, I never wanted to get into the game of like every time I put an idea and people are going to be then thinking, do we want to use that? Because then we got to give him songwriting credits. So he just never took them so that the idea would be used and he'd be paid as the producer. The artist wouldn't have to think in the creative process about the business of it. Right.
1: That has to be a conversation that the producer has to have ahead of time because Mutt Lang's songwriting credits are all over the Def Leppard albums and all over the Brian Adams albums. But I don't know about ACDC or any of the other people that he worked with, also the Shania Twain albums. So I think that's a thing that they would come up with ahead of time is that I'll be in on the songwriting process here. That would be my opinion. I don't know if that's the way it worked out, but it seems to me that'd be something you'd have to you know, work out ahead of time.
0: Yeah, I think you're right on that. And one of the things that Bob Rock said in that interview as well was that that, that has changed over recent years. Because producing has changed, like like you were talking about. So he's more like a coach to bring out the best from the musician right, and right. stuff. I'm sure you saw that Metallica documentary where they have him there. And he's like trying to psych up and motivate Kirk Hammett to play like an amazing solo. You're going to be Guitar Player of the Year, you know. So part of that is like just coaching, you know. And if you if yeah. you listen to Ruben talking, he's like over the years become this like guru kind of guy, you yeah. know. So it's less less is more kind of approach. Like we talked about with Prince recording Kiss, right? Right. He had put in a whole bunch of stuff, horn section and backup vocals and stuff, and he realized it was just killing the song, so he took it all out bit by bit. Yeah. Rick Rubin, I see his style as much more of that. A lot of it is trying to listen to what the artist is trying to get, like what is their goal, and then him knowing how to make that happen.
1: I just wonder if a guy like, going back to Mutt Lang, if he sits down with the band ahead of time and says okay you guys want to have a hit album you guys want to have like uh thing a certain vibe then you got to listen to me and just is really direct or you know because he's going to be a collaborator at that point like billy joel brought in bill ramon to do his big breakout album and It just, it was still Billy Joel, but he just like, I don't know, he sort of made that sound for those first, like, I think it was The uh, Stranger was the album, Just the Way You Are and then all that other big hits on there. And then 52nd Street, that was him, and Glass Houses, I think, was him as well. And then I think uh, Nylon Curtain, which had Pressure and all of those on there. And then the last big album that he had with We Didn't Start the Fire, Stormfront album, was Mick Jones from Foreigner. Wow, okay. The guitar player from Foreigner. And he produced that album and it's just sort of that album and you can hear it. It's just like a totally different thing. So what I'm saying is I think a guy like Phil Ramone doesn't go to Billy Joel and says, hey, we're going to make this sound like I want it to sound. Hmm. He goes to a guy like Billy Joel and says, okay, let's make you like more Billy Joel. You know what I mean? Let's craft a sound, the Billy Joel sound, as opposed to um, Mutt Lang. When you listen to a Shania Twain album, You can hear his production Mm -hmm. from the Def Leppard albums in the Shania Twain albums.
0: Right. See, that's one of my questions about that is I've heard a couple of these producers talking about, you know, like Bob Rock was the one who said, I don't go in there and tell them what I want it to sound like. Rick Rubin said as well, he said, I listen to what they want to achieve, kind of like you were just saying, and I try to figure out based on what I know and what I can do, how do I get them there? You know yeah but Lang I I do think there's more of him just just saying like this is what I do yeah this is my sound do you want yeah. it or not for sure again I'm talking a lot about Bob Rock but he said that he said listen I, I don't go in and try to change what I do for every artist that comes through I know the way I hear it from my perspective and if they want their music to be recorded through that lens they come to me yeah yeah you know like because Either way, like I think this is probably true for for the two of us as well. Like Anything you record, I could record classical music or jazz music or blues or whatever, and it's going to come out sounding like Jeremy did that because it's just the way that I hear it and do it, you know?
1: Yeah, the thing about a producer is he should be able to take you to that next level, right? Regardless of what the approach is, if he's trying to make it sound like his sound or he's trying to make the band or the artist sound like they sound but just like me. I've always thought of the producer as the guy who can make the band sound professional.
0: Well, look at Quincy Jones, right? He produced Michael Jackson, Off the Wall. I mean, Quincy Jones is a guy who, holy cow, if you've listened to music over the last 60 years, heard Quincy Jones, right? But let's say just his production with Michael Jackson, when they were doing Off the Wall, there was one of the songs that they had, like a horn part that came in at the beginning. Yeah. And Michael Jackson went to Quincy Jones and said, you know, I don't I don't like the way that sounds. I think it takes away sort of the groove of it. Can we just take that back out and just have the drums or something? And Quincy Jones said, that's what needs to be there. It's there, you know? Wow. So, okay, Michael Jackson at that point wasn't the post-thriller Michael Jackson, but he was a big star who had been in it for his entire life. Okay. By the same token, though, I honestly
1: think that Michael Jackson or whoever hired Quincy Jones, I'm sure it was him maybe with his father involved or something. I think that he hired him specifically so that he could mentor under him.
0: Exactly. Which I think is the whole point of that. Like there are people who would go in and say, I'm going to try and make you sound more like a better version of yourself on a recording. Yeah. That's what he was going for. And he wasn't going to let this kid who had some great songs and had tons of talent, tell him how to do that because that's what he was hired for you know right so in that sense it's not just a coaching thing it's definitely not just a tech part because the engineer takes care of that right Right. The engineer is the one who actually does the thing that the producer says yeah you know, bring up the bring up the mid and the kick drum so that it's got more punch you know yeah and but it's a guy like that who's who's also like he's coaching he's saying no this is what you need to do right now so if he comes in with the game plan, I guess it'd be like the difference between uh,
1: LeBron James's coach when he was 20 versus his coach when he's now, you know, like whatever, 36, 37 years old, right?
0: That, LeBron that coach James... still makes the calls for the plays. Yeah. yeah. So LeBron but, LeBron but, James, but he, he'll carry it out.
1: But he might go to LeBron and say, what do you think about this, that, or the other thing? Whereas when he's 20, he's going to say, no, let's let's play it this way.
0: I, I... Sure, and that's that makes sense. I mean, there's that um, there's a there's the learning curve of professionalism, where you're um, inexperienced and unaware of it, <laughs> to where you become experienced and aware of it, and then you get past the point where you're so experienced that you're not even paying attention to it anymore. At that point, you have you have a guy who has become one of the greatest. You know, you're not going to go to him and just say you're going to do this. No consultation. Right no questions because he's also coming into it where he's at the point where you could probably coach too. That's what I'm kind of getting to is how many times
1: do you think that has happened that a guy with a lot of potential or an artist with a lot of potential and a lot of creativity and a lot of ideas, two sides of that. The first side is that he wants to do it the way he wants to do it. And he's too young or too inexperienced or too immature to know what's going to work and what's not. And the flip side being, How many times is it a guy like Prince? Like, remember, we talked about Little Red Corvette the other day, which was produced, you know, I think he did his own there, right? Oh, yeah. How would he have benefited or been quashed down in his creativity if he had a producer that was too set in his own ways? You you see the dichotomy there? Because a guy like Michael Jackson, I still think Quincy Jones left him enough creative room to maneuver and then just put his little touches on here and there to make it what it was.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing. You don't go in... Don't change things just for the sake of changing things, you know. Change things very purposefully yeah. because that will help them to reframe the idea. Like Quincy Jones was convinced that this horn part had to go there, or else yeah. the and it didn't have a hook when you listen to the first thirty seconds of the song, right? Yeah. Jackson just wanted the beat because he wanted to establish the the groove. Yeah. At that point, that's the conversation they had previously. Like I'm here. To make these calls, of course I'll listen to you. You've got tons of experience, you've got tons of talent, and I respect that. You have leeway, but there's going to be a point where, no matter how much collaboration there is in a in a in a partnership, somebody's got to make the call. Sure, you know? sure. As long as they've established that before those moments come up. See, isn't that the case in a band as well? The uh,
1: creative differences in a band, but somebody's got to eventually make a decision. Yeah. And, you know, when I hear interviews with the police, Stuart Copeland definitely said, in the end, Sting was right most of the time, you know, but it was just, it, gr- it graded on them that he was the guy calling the shots, right? That that felt like he was always right. I thought Andy Summers was, was Sting's real name. What's Sting's real name?
0: Gordon Summers. Gordon Summers. Yeah. You know why his name was Sting? No. He wore a leather jacket that had, like, yellow and black stripes, so it looked like a, a bee. <laughs> so they called him Sting, and he was like, "Well, that's kind of cool, you know." <laughs> so produced by. We have to go back to what your point was on this now that we.
1: Well, because you're going to have different levels of decision making, right, when it comes to the songwriting process or the or the arrangements,
0: you know. Hugh Pagham. That's the Hugh Pagham. Hugh Charles Pagham.
1: Hey, do me a favor. Quickly check uh, every breath you take. Uh,
0: is there hi hats on that? No hats. No hats. And I think no. also no crashes. Okay, but, you know, they do that for the first half of the song, but then when they go into the bridge section, they bring in a yeah, crash. It. Does it? Yeah. Since you gone, I've been lost without. Yeah. You know? Uh, are you sure about that? Would I, I like it? you? Here. <laughs> ha! Do you hear it? Okay, it'll come in right after this, Phil. He goes dun-dun, psh. Okay. Oh, yeah. And now there's a ride there. Right on the bell, actually. Okay. So
1: he's he hitting does, right on the
0: does, bell of the ride.
1: He does the crash on the four instead of the one.
0: Right. And then, then he hits the ride and he's hitting the bell like tang, 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 you know? Okay. And then it, as, when they come
1: out of that, is it gone or do they keep it in after that?
0: Ooh, good question. back out they they take it back out but they fill in with a really twangy sort of piano way up in the yes you know so hold on it says here this is wikipedia that i'm looking at yeah um it says that uh, hugh pagam is credited for creating gated reverb I, i'm guessing he had a big voice in making helping them make that sound um
1: yeah that was their last album and i think that I don't know if he did one before that. I think he did one or maybe two other albums before that. He definitely wasn't on like the Roxanne or the Don't Stand So uh, Maybe Don't Stand So Close to Me. Maybe he was on that album. I think that I think that he might have produced Genesis
0: and or Phil Collins. Well, it says here I'm I'm scrolling down through Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. Pagham is credited for creating gated reverb. It was used so prominently on Phil Collins' single in The Air Tonight. It became the template for much of the recorded pop drum sounds of the 1980s. So it's this guy, Hugh Pagham. Thank you for knowing that. He was the one who made that sound that was in the air tonight and then on Peter Gabriel's album in 1980 as well. And like it just says that became kind of like the sound of drums for the 80s. I'm just wondering if he's a drummer. It just talks about his production here. It doesn't talk about him playing.
1: That's interesting, yeah. though, you know. Like, you got to figure that Stuart Copeland and Phil Collins were also, like, if not in
0: competition with each other, they were probably friends, you know? I, I think they would have inspired each other, because you were right. He produced Face Value, Abacab, and Hello, I Must Be Going. So, right. right. In my opinion, the, the best stuff that Genesis and Phil Collins produced, really, you know? Yeah, it's great stuff.
1: Great. By the time it gets to the producer... I, I think the band has usually, in those days anyways, not now so much, but in those days, the band had already worked on the song and got the arrangement that they wanted. And then it was just a matter of the of the producer putting his stamp on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, think about how, I don't know how many times this has happened to you, but it's happened to me tons of times that I play keyboards in a band and we think we sound great, right? And then we go in the studio and I realize that the, the chords that I'm playing on the keyboard are completely stepping on the toes of the chords played by the guitar player. We're playing the same notes. Right. So right. we have inversions or maybe I have to play up an octave or you know make changes so that that becomes a dynamic sound that builds rather than just you're just jamming. So you know if you want to play a C chord you play C E and G. You play like the tonic triad, right? Yeah, yeah. And then but then you go in the studio and you realize that the guitar player is playing those exact same notes. Yeah. Now, not everybody, not every band would go into the studio and notice that. The producer in that case, dynamically speaking, that would have to be what, what they would go, wait a minute, guys, can you hear that? You're playing exactly yeah. the same thing. What if it was irrelevant here? Yeah. I don't think it can be the same thing even with the same producer every time, because it depends on who you're working with. I'm sure there are
1: producers that are going for a certain sound, a certain when I say a certain sound, I mean something that they're 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 trying to echo the sound of something else. There are other producers that have their thing and then there are still other producers I think that are trying to be totally out of the box like why don't we try this you know All
0: right let's take Phil Spector you know yeah. he had the wall of sound and that was his sound nobody was gonna go in and say hey Phil can we try less echo <laughs> did you see that movie it was it was Dustin Hoffman wasn't it that played Phil Spector no I haven't seen that one. oh man you gotta watch that I mean Really, really well done, and just enough leaving the questions so it's not like this is what happened. You know, this movie is very clever about how they do that. They leave a little bit of space so that you kind of go, oh, okay, yes, that's what we think happened, but we're not sure. It kind of like cuts the scene.
1: I like that. You know, like it's like you know, it's it's not even leaving it in open for interpretation. It's that these are these are facts that are that are unknown to most people, and we're not going to assume that that this is what happened. Right. Anywho, I I just think that like a guy like Phil Spector is uh, you know he's he's actually kind of a controversial producer because of the fact like so he started in in Motown I think right in in uh, right? Motown Records maybe I'm wrong maybe that's the Brill side or whatever the Brill there was the, Brill the, Building? the Car- yeah the Brill Building the Carol King that that era
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: think that's maybe where Phil Spector uh, got famous. But his thing was just like, get all of the singers in the studio, get all of the, get all of the. I mean, it's just a, just a big, you know, the wall of sound, right? And that's what he did for every artist that he produced.
0: Yeah. So when he got Tina Turner in, right? He brought her in to be. I, I think he saw all of the singers and musicians as instruments that he was going to play. You know. Right. Hugely controlling of the whole experience you know and maybe that's why Prince started off so young recording his own stuff because like not everybody is going to play the note exactly like you want it so it's better if you can play all the instruments why not just play yourself yeah but Phil Spector I think he saw even Tina Turner coming in with that amazing voice and all that as just another instrument in his in his toolkit you know so it wasn't about, you're an artist, and so let's have a chat about how you want this to go, and how do you want to phrase this? No, you're going to sing exactly these notes, and I'm going to put this amount of reverb, because that's what I hear in my head, and I'm the producer. Wow.
1: You know, like, that's uh, kind of along the lines of the uh, the director, right,
0: as of a movie. Like, you're going to say this line this way. Right. Nope, not like this. <laughs> yeah. But then, obviously, Phil Spector, had he produced some great stuff, and... Lots of success, right? So you can't really think that's a bad way to do it. But at the same time, no, you know- no. If you're
1: if you're looking for a certain, if you if you're looking for your own type of sound, like, can you imagine? I don't know. Just pick anyone. The Rolling Stones. You know, they go to would they go to Phil Spector? Probably not. But for some reason, somebody handed the long and winding road to Phil Spector and said, "Produce this," and he put all the strings and everything on after the fact. And that's- the beat. At least some of them were not happy with it. I don't remember historically who it was, but um, the pared-down version came out later. I didn't mind that version, uh, you know, with the strings and everything. I was was kind of okay with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, he had a a good sound, but you you made me think, like, when you said the producer is kind of like the director for a movie, right? Like, the Batman movie, Heath Ledger, he played the Joker, right? Yeah. And there are a number of little things that happen on the screen that we see – that weren't scripted he just did them and they were like oh that is amazing we're keeping that right phil Spector, as the director of that movie that wouldn't have happened i doubt it or even mutt Lang. yeah exactly can i give you a
1: comfortable situation i think if you look at phil collins development you know as a drummer then a vocalist and then a you know <laughs> a songwriter in there too but like and then he starts producing stuff and by the time he gets to the mid '80s, it's the Phil Collins sound. It's the drums. It's that voice. There's, you know, it's fully developed. Now everything that comes out at that point, it that's what it sounds like. Yeah. You know,
0: and there's not much of a surprise anymore. I, I really liked his first two solo albums a lot, especially Thank Face Value. Yeah, um, me too. But, uh, you know, the stuff that he like No Jacket Required. I still really liked it at that point you know and it got to the point where um he even said you know there was a point in the 80s early 90s where he found himself annoying because he was everywhere (laughs) yeah
1: Yeah, but but it's it's because he was great you know he was great and people wanted to have that kind of like quality to their sound maybe not necessarily that sound but Mm -hmm. something that phil collins had his hands on you know i mean just his rhythm the guy's rhythm is just something else, you know?
0: Yeah, super so, solid, but, I mean, in the air tonight, let's say, like, what makes that song so great? Part of it is the production. The, his decision-making on the drums there, you know? Um, that dun 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 He didn't hit a crash. Yeah. You know, like, it's those things that he threw in that were, like, these little moments of genius that yeah, I guess once you once you found your stride and this working for you, I probably would produce the, the drums the same way. I'd make sure the EQ, the the echo, everything, or the reverb that he had on there. You know, that's just again, like Bob Rock, it's it's that's my perspective. That's how I hear it. You asked Phil
1: that, Was was that the album that he did on an A track? There was one of them that he did on an A track. I don't know. I don't it was know. a reel to reel, but it was just like he he forced himself to like really go bare bones.
0: Is that is that why? Because I remember hearing a story about him, and then later Peter Peter Gabriel. I think I don't know which one inspired the other to do this, but they took all the hardware off the drums, the or the ride. You couldn't have cymbals, right? Just to like live a challenge. You know the
1: challenge a challenge like okay, can you can you make a can you make a hit record without this?
0: Yeah. So I I took that idea. <laughs> my my friend and I recorded a, a demo of seven songs in Venezuela back in the, in the early 2000s, late, no, late 90s. Yeah. Yeah, it was about 99, 2000s. Well, yeah. And we had heard something about that story and we said, let's do the same thing. Man, yeah. it is. Like if you take away the hi-hat, right? <laughs> because like yeah. every song goes, like it's a different pattern than the hi-hat, but there's a hi-hat. When you take that away, then what do you do? We used a bunch of different like um sort of folk instruments to try and fill in the top and the high end of the of the rhythm section. Yeah, then, well, so you could do it on
1: you could do it on uh, on, a, on a guitar. you could do it on a mandolin. you could do it on a variety of things,
0: right? yeah, well, that was that was the whole idea. So, yeah, like my guitar playing on that on a lot of those songs was a lot more rhythmic than I would have normally done. So I put in like a track where I was just going ching 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 because ching, 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 I was the hi hat now. <laughs> that was kind of the idea even with what we were doing our simple little recordings we were trying to say you have to have something up in in the high end string sections or the guitar going
1: I did a ballad back in the 80s late 80s called day goes by and that was that was that was my goal there no no hi-hats and no crashes and what I used was a shaker uh, I used a shaker, and then I just there's uh, there was I just used swells like um, pad swells mm-hmm. to okay. take from one section of the song to the to the next.
0: Yeah, I, I do that a lot with the the digital type of music that I do sometimes on GarageBand, you know. Yeah. To do a tra- to do a transition, sometimes I use a reverse cymbal just because it sounds right at the time. But I I like to use like synth swells yeah. instead of using like a crash or something traditional you know so like wow. back to the whole what does a producer thing what does a producer do you play you play your notes well, i'll make it sound like that can we put it simply
1: can we just say that if you own a mac and you've got GarageBand in it
0: that you have the tools necessary to be a producer so okay so yes and no because um it depends on what you want to produce. Like, if you want to if you want to come out with something that is a rock record, then it's a little bit difficult to get the right guitar sound to really get the punch, you know? Yeah. So I guess in terms of the tools itself, maybe. Let me simplify it a little bit more.
1: Um, in GarageBand,
0: is where you could start out producing. Okay. Yes, but then take so, a look at stuff that I've recorded. That, like you said, well pan some stuff. Like, I had everything down the middle, right? And you're like, yeah. man, it sounds it sounds like just canned music, you know? Like, look at look at panning the different instruments to get to get more right. Uh, right. more dynamic sound, right? Simple, simple yeah. things. Um, so yeah, for sure. But then I I still don't know that I you still got to learn your chops. I mean, you know what? I really
1: appreciated in your <laughs> in your WeChat uh, song. Is that you know the kick is on the left and the and the and the snare is on the right and I mean that's like <laughs> that's like something you 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 wouldn't normally do but I mean you listen to it I didn't notice it when I was just listening on my phone but when I had my headphones on uh, then I then I noticed it and it's like yeah that's you know it's 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 a it's a studio trick but it's still it's it's a lot of fun to do that well, kind of stuff when I say do you have the tools necessary to be a producer well it like you say up to a certain point in GarageBand, it'll only take you so far. Then you got to go to Logic or to uh, Pro Tools or whatever. Right. And even at that, you still got to have some outboard gear. You got to have, you know, some some equipment that you can call on, like amps and, and direct boxes and, and certain types of mics and et cetera, et cetera. Like you can get as expensive with it as you want. But my point right. being is that listening to this and wondering what it is that a producer does, it's basically what you do when you go into GarageBand and start trying to put a song together and come up with a sound, you know, for yourself. Yeah. And that's all yeah. it is. Anything more complicated than that is maybe maybe getting involved in the songwriting, or maybe getting involved in the uh, the way that the drummer plays his part, um, like you said, the way you know the way the kick sounds, all of those sorts of things, right? Just getting more and more into the detail of the song, and how do you pull the best sound out of that song that
0: you possibly can using the tools that you've got. Right. I mean, also, I'm thinking in terms of just working in a collaborative team, right? You're you're picking right. somebody wh- whose voice you trust, and you're letting them be a voice in this thing that you're going to create that is like it's your baby, you know? So, okay, one of the things I wanted to ask was about Rick Rubin. What do you think?
1: Well, you know what? I have to admit that I kind of fell out of following the producers' game by the time Rick Rubin came along. I think he was a Red Hot Chili Peppers guy originally.
0: He started off with uh, Run DMC, and then he Run DMC. Yeah, I think that's how he like got started, and then the Beastie Boys. Yeah. So I...
1: that's sort of what I how I remember his production. Great, amazing. Um, name a couple others because. Here's the thing. When I was a kid, which was way back in the 70s through the 80s, up until about 88, and I wouldn't have followed because we had a real prejudice against uh, uh, disco, R&B, all that stuff when I was growing up in Alberta. Okay. Uh, our our circle of friends, you know, we sort of poo-pooed the whole, the whole rap thing. It was going to die. It was going to die like a mm-hmm. slow death. And,
0: there's and, no way know, this can lose
1: the, There's – it's not – it's not going to last. And so uh, so I, uh, you know, I followed the guys that we followed, pop and rock guys. That's it. And then Rick Rubin was on my radar for a, a, a couple of years. And then in the 90s, I kind of shifted over because I started getting ready to come to China. Mm-hmm. And I was doing more on the countryside. Okay. So we were, um, yeah. So I was focused a little bit more on that. And I kind of got away from recording and producing at that point, too. I got a little bit less geeky in the early 90s.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because like what you just said, you kind of you have to have the time to be able to look into like to geek out on somebody's guitar sound or something like that. Like, I will go back to this question and and telling you like some stuff that he did. But I have to mention Bob Rock again. So one of the things he said is that he has hundreds of um, guitars and amplifiers he has every amplifier that um, Jimmy Page has ever used in a recording and the the guitar and the pedals to go with it. He also did that for Eric Clapton and for Jeff Beck. And I don't know who, who else, you know? So, like, he can replicate the exact sound of an exact Led Zeppelin song. So if you say, oh, man, I wish we could have, you know, that... That guitar sound from um, Days and Confused or something, you know? He, oh yeah, I can. Yeah. I, I have all the equipment to do that exactly. You play, you play your notes. Well, I'll make it sound like that. So yeah, um, Rick Rubin produced uh, early stuff. He like I said, it was uh, like the Beastie Boys, and then he decided that he didn't want to like pigeonhole himself, so he went to what he loved originally, which was rock. So he produced Slayer. Wow! Holy smokes! <laughs> If you don't want to be degree. typecast, man. Yeah. Oh, LL Cool J, the radio um album. Yeah. Um he did he produced basically everything that Johnny Cash did um, American sport right. the man comes around. I knew that. Yeah. And <clears throat> I'm just picking out ones that I think wow, that's like holy cow, you know? Um so he he did the yeah. Oh, he did Weezer um who I just think, I mean, great band, great production, like the sound of that band in the studio. Yeah. Let's see, he, he did Neil Diamond, 12 Songs, in 2005. ACDC, Ball no Yeah, and then he, he did the, the Chili Peppers again. So he did Blood Sugar Sex Magic in 91, and then he produced them again in 1999 for Californication. Okay. Wolfsbane, early days, 1989. The Cult, oh, Electric. Really? Hey, I got a crazy story. I just learned this. Sunday. I learned this yesterday on a chat. I was doing a yeah. um, text chat with the bass player that was in my band back in the 80s. We had a band in Pickering, Ontario called Out of Bounds. And we had started to play, you know, the Opera House in Toronto and Rock and Roll Heaven and those kinds of things. So, like, still bars, but, like, bigger venues for bands, you know. And yeah. uh, and he and I have talked a bunch of times about, man, you know, like, we had really good songs. And if we just did this or we, if we had done that or whatever... So he told me yesterday something that I never knew until yesterday. So I'm talking like Mm -hmm. 1980, late 80. Wow. maybe, Maybe 1990. Okay, here's what he told me. At one point, when we were trying to make our second demo, we were recording what I thought were really good, like rock songs, right? Yeah. The bass player from the cult at the time, James Stewart was the bass player for the cult at that time. Again, I didn't know this until yesterday. My, the bass player, Dwayne, he's at home living at his mom's place cause we were still teenagers, right? And his yeah. mom calls him, Dwayne, some British guy's on the phone wants to talk to you. Okay. And so he goes on the phone, and it's James Stewart from The Cult. And he's like, yeah, I heard I heard your first demo. I thought it sounded really good, and I'd love to produce you guys. And are you kidding? Yeah. So James Stewart called our bass player, and um, so Dwayne said, okay, so this is super exciting. Like, what are we talking here? He said, well, I need $15,000, and I'll produce you guys. Long story short, basically, <laughs> Dwayne said, we, we don't have 15 cents. Like, we... Right. We're teenagers living at our parents' houses. I was working at Consumers Distributing making 3 dollars an hour, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> and so That's um Dwayne Dwayne tried to work his way into getting some money to do it, but it just seemed so impossible. He couldn't swing it. Like he he was the the guy who hustled for our band. He got us all our gigs and all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, did he tell you why he, he just couldn't Because that seems yeah pretty. He said that's a big decision to make, right?
1: Well, it's just crazy that all this time nobody's told you about it. That's crazy.
0: He was the only one who knew. He never told anybody in the band, and he just um, he said it was just like don't don't bring impossible things to the team and disrupt the team. You know, like we couldn't scrape together fifteen thousand dollars. I I mean maybe we could have. Who knows? But he thought at the time it was like an impossible thing, and if we if he had brought that to us. It could have torn us apart. Right. Which I thought, and wow, just, like, it, holy cow, that's interesting. really interesting to find out. Unreal. Yeah. So I once I found that out yesterday, I looked up in his producing credits. He produced uh, later, uh, Sloan was like, I guess, the biggest thing that he produced. Um, also Canadian? Yes. So they, they actually, he produced a cover of A Case of You by Joni Mitchell, played by Sloane. <laughs> yeah, which I actually really liked the sound that he got, you know, and Sloan, Sloan was a cool band anyway.
1: Well, you know, the the economic realities of it are, are, I mean, that's usually, I think, that's why talented people don't get out is a lack of money
0: or lack of resources. Yeah, and I mean, that's something we can talk about in another episode, but the, like, in a way that's opened up. So because you can record something on GarageBand, you can put it out on um, Instagram and all that kinds of stuff, and you can get your name out there. It's opened up a huge possibility so that the record company doesn't have to own everybody. Market's gone. I mean, you know, there's no album sales anymore, really. Right. Yeah. So look at these guys on Instagram, like uh, Jacob Collier. You know, he started off a super talented guy, like, Crazy talent, right? But yeah. you know, he's posting stuff on Instagram, and then suddenly he's doing a video with Herbie Hancock, and then Justin schultz who is like what 17, 18 years old, super talented kid, right? And suddenly he's jamming with Jacob Collier and <laughs> Jesus yeah. Molina. These yeah. guys, Jesus Molina, have you heard him? Yeah. Oh my God! Like these guys are incredible. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. they just marketed themselves basically. I know, and that's and that's it.
1: it's it can still be done, but it's you got to do it a different way now than 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 right. in the old days. Um, Hey, I wanted to say, I found two lists of producers, we can post them when we post this podcast. One of them was just like overall, like best producers overall. And the other is the best producers of the 21st century. And it's very interesting the type of people you find on each list, because basically all the 21st century ones are the ones that we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast, which is like, you know, sitting in front of their computer, making, making tracks for people, or or maybe they're already saying, you you know, it depends on the type of collaboration they've got and everything like that, but it's just a whole different world since computers came into the game, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to find out what happened to, let's say, for example, Babyface.
1: Atlanta, where he comes from, is apparently still a a really happening place for music, but he just kind of stopped, I don't know if he stopped producing or what happened, but yeah,
0: because he was a big deal in the 90s. What I remember, the one that really brought him to my attention was when he produced Eric Clapton. Yes. We talked about this on the last pod on
1: the first podcast, which is that list of the 10 worst albums by amazing artists and Pilgrim, which was produced by baby fake was one of those albums.
0: Really? Yeah. Maybe that was the thing. Maybe he was totally panned.
1: I, I liked that album. I really did. It had my father's eyes and it, it had a bunch of other really cool riffs on it. I can see why, Eric Clapton diehards maybe might not like it but uh, I like yeah, it a but, lot
0: Yeah I mean I think I think that's right and I, I agree with you I, I like the sound of it it just seems really strange that he was like building up this name as an artist and then as a producer and then I don't know maybe I stopped paying attention got, but I just didn't see his name Yeah
1: We don't need to be corrected we need to be
0: educated So educated you know. so somebody somebody can write in and, and say but what you talking what are you talking about babyface just did this amazing thing with These amazing people and, you know, whoops. (laughs) Until we started looking into this stuff, I didn't realize that Bob Brock had done stuff recently.
1: Yeah, I think all those guys are keeping their fingers in the pies. Like even David Foster is still out there doing stuff, you know, and he's in his 70s.
0: Yeah. What I think is great is like they get to a point where they can be super selective. Like Bob Brock said, you know, if if I'm going to produce somebody – and I have to leave my family for a certain amount of time, you know, live in a hotel and not be with my family, it's got to be a pretty special deal.
1: And that happens when you've got nothing
0: left to prove. Well, and when you have millions and millions of dollars in the bank, you know, like, so they're not doing yeah. it for the money. They have nothing left to prove. They're totally just doing it for the love of it, which is like the best place to be in. Daniel yeah. Lanois, you mentioned him.
1: Uh, yes, Daniel Lanois. You 2 um, Robbie Robertson, uh, a, a ton of others, I can't think of them on hand, but um, this guy had definitely one of his own, like, his, his own sound.
0: Yeah. That he brought yeah. to If, the if somebody went to him, it's because they wanted to sound like the Daniel Lanois sound. Yeah. I just remember hearing that Robbie Robertson album
1: for the first time, and I, you know, wow, just sounded so good, and the songs were so good. But you know what, the thing is that Daniel Lanois works with guys that are also really strong songwriters you know like mm. i don't i don't think that it's the songwriting so much as just the production that he that he
0: adds to it you know <laughs> well i mean but all of these guys like we're talking about once they hit that point right like daniel Lamois had to build that name first so he would have been working at some point with pretty much whoever he could work with you know right. like when you're just cutting right. your teeth you you don't go well well, I don't really like that bass sound, so I'm not gonna work with you. You're like, we'll work on it. We'll we'll, we'll do something. You know? <laughs> you know? Right, right. And I guess that's part of my question too. Like, any one of them? Do you think they pick winners and then they just polish it? Is that is that the real talent, or is it that Mutt Lang could take pretty much anybody and make them sound good?
1: No, I don't. I, I I still think that they they look at somebody and they go, this one's got something, uh, you know, that that I can really you know, sink my teeth into. Absolutely. It's, it's got to be the, the raw product. has got to be there.
0: Okay. So so that's part of the producer's job too, that is recognizing the potential of something. Absolutely.
1: I, I don't think that somebody just
0: off the street is going to be able to go to them and say, I want you to produce me.
1: And, and then they listen to the stuff and they go,
0: no, sorry, I can't do it. You know? Yeah. I mean... Definitely, once they have that name, like we're we're naming producers who are famous, right?
1: I think even early going, like I mean when he, what he, he had to go and listen to the Boomtown rats and say, yeah, okay, guys, I'll do it for you, you know, or like the guy that called right. your bandmate, you know, he heard something there that he liked, you know that's why he that's why you got the call. and I'm yeah. sure that he
0: wanted the money too, but I mean, fifteen grand is is not a poke in the eye, but he was playing for the cult at that point, like well I think that that he, he listened to what
1: he what you guys had, and, and he liked it. And, I mean, I like a, I told you, I had a couple of songs that were picked up by a local artist in, in Alberta, and, you know, they didn't turn out exactly the way that I wanted. Maybe they didn't turn out the way he wanted either, but, you know, I think that the songs were solid, and had they been picked up by a major artist, they probably would have done all right, you know? And yeah. That, I, People's ears are, are are what they go by first
0: and foremost, right? Yeah, so that makes sense to me because for them to build a career, they couldn't go into it just looking for the quick buck. No, as a producer, I think that your 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 instruments
1: their instruments are your ears.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I wanted to I wanted to sort of talk through that, but what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. A guy, a young Bob Rock, you know, playing with the the Paolas. When he decided he wanted to go into producing, I mean, I don't know how much of that was was financial or not, but definitely the things he picked is because he believed in the potential of that sound.
1: I think that there's always that element, no matter what you're doing, of trying to make a buck at it, right? And hopefully make a big buck at it. But I think that in the end, he's not going to just, you know, he's going to listen to, he probably listened to a ton of tapes before he got to the Boomtown Rats, you know? That would be my yeah. guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. No. Okay, well, there you go. So we, we talked about what a producer does and sort of like some of the things that are part of that, right? We talked about a yep. couple of really famous ones. Yeah. I don't feel like we've explored enough the idea of what does a producer do today? How has it changed? Maybe this
1: episode is called The Producers
0: One. Yeah, because I don't feel like it could possibly be the same thing. Because with the music that I produce, let's say, right, that I that I make, right, What's missing for me is a Rick Rubin type of guru guy that's going to tell me which parts of it are too much, which parts of it are not enough. You know, which parts are, is it too sonically squished? You know, another fresh set of ears that can hear all of those things and know what's going to turn people on and off.
1: And part of the reason this thing fascinates me so much is because back in the day, in the late 80s, early 90s, I thought of being a producer as being the next logical step for me, okay. professionally, but I never pursued it, and you know, sort of just ended up going in a, a totally different direction. Because we had the studio, we had the gear, we had everything. I would have loved to take some local Edmonton bands and and bring them into the studio, and uh, and and make something of it. But um, you know, I never, I never thought. I guess I didn't have the confidence to take it any further.
0: That's part of it, too, is just having that confidence.
1: Yeah, and but knowing that you know how to get it, you know, you know how yeah. to get that sound. When we were recording
0: in Venezuela, we went to the recording studio to work as producers slash engineers for like demo tapes for people. Right. I thought we'd be there like having these amazing meetings with these really cool musicians and we'd be hanging out and like talking music and the kinds of things yeah. that, that we were just talking about, like where the producer sits down with the band and sets the ground rules and how are we going to do this and like creative, you know? And actually what happened is we'd have like a Saturday where the group would come in, set up, lay down all their tracks, and then leave. And then I'd spend the next three months mixing it. Right.
1: Because they don't have the money to re-record it.
0: That's it. They laid down their tracks and all I could do was polish. Not really producing. Exactly. I was just mixing. I was just an engineer. I wasn't a producer.
1: We could do producers too where we get a little more in-depth into what a producer
0: actually does and spend a little more time on – Stuff like the
1: gear, and especially, like you said, the the 21st century guys. What's different between them and prior
0: eras? Or even the prior era guys today. Like Bob Rock, how has his job changed over the last 20 years? Good stuff. Talk to you soon. (laughs) Don't forget to like and subscribe. Good night!